0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Rise and Mastery. And I'm excited to have Gabby Kazu, who's the partner at Harlem Capital, which is a New York-based minority-owned early-stage venture firm on a mission to change the face of entrepreneurship by investing in 1,000 diverse founders over the next 20 years. Uh, Gabby has done an MBA from Yale. Welcome to the show, Gabby. Thanks for having me. Uh, So excited to be here today. Awesome. So, so, you know, um, you have quite interesting... uh, experience, you've been doing, uh, you started as an engineer uh, and, and product development, but how did you get into this crazy world of venture capital?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, the dots make a little bit more sense looking back than going forward, I think at the time, but I, uh, my background's in engineering, so I was working in R&D and product development in the food industry, and I just really love thinking about how do you solve really big and interesting problems. I knew that space wasn't necessarily where I wanted to stay, and so I really started digging deep, Um, to understand, okay, what are the categories and areas where I can have a big impact with my skills, where I can solve bigger problems that impact the communities that I really care about. And I kept coming back to the tech world, um, a little bit closer to more technical roots, um, but also, you know, seeing that that's where innovation was spinning and where you could really build something meaningful on on a large scale. And so I got really excited about finding myself in the tech world, but I wasn't really sure where that would land me. And so... I was headed to business school and decided to do a a pre-MBA internship, Um, was looking for startups, but ended up finding Harlem Capital first. And originally just thought it'd be a great opportunity to learn about entrepreneurship, learn about what it looks like to support early founders, really to think also about what I might want to do and what problems I might want to solve and learn from people who get to see the entire landscape from this great bird's eye view. And it was really that entry point in that internship time where I really sort of pivoted and just fell in love with venture capital. Fell in love with the opportunity to support founders, particular diverse founders. And I think that being core to our mission was really value aligned with what I cared about and got me really excited. Um, but to be able to help entrepreneurs as they are building and solving the big problems of our time and help them uh, scale their businesses and, and um, change the world in that way, too. Um, but I think in particular because of the team and the mission just got really excited uh, through business school, worked on and off at a couple of other things and kept coming back to venture, kept coming back to Harlem Capital. And really also, I think um, our mission to change the face of entrepreneurship really struck with stuff with me and um, to get the opportunity to join an early team that's also a startup on its own got um, got me really excited. And so that was sort of the, the short story of the path.
0: So, super interesting. You know, I I started off in, in startups and I I started off in sales and business development, but I was supporting a product leader, and so he was building product, and I was going to sell it. But uh, but I've always been envious of you know product product guys and product leaders. But does it help to have an engineering and product uh mindset when you're looking at venture deals now?
1: I think it can. It does. I think in particular if you're at the early stage, maybe a little bit less at later stage when you know, the business is really defined, they've got their clear product, they know who their customer is, they're really just about scale. On the other side of the early stage, it's really ambiguous and you have to really understand, okay, who might that customer be that they wanna serve? What is the problem they're solving? How do I really understand the pain point? And I think an engineering or product development background, I think what it gives you is that innate curiosity to understand, to kind of put yourself into that other seat. I think in that work, you also just ask a lot of questions. And I think as an an early stage investor, like that's all you really do is ask questions to understand the person who's building the thing and the thing that they're building and who they will ultimately serve. And I think on the product side, that's when you really start to get the customer lens and build the empathy to understand why this solution might be so great for them. And so I think it's those in combination, I think that really help. But at the end of the day, I think it's learning to ask really good questions, staying curious and always having an open mind. And I think- you know, being an engineer, um, that background, that training really sets you up well
0: for that. All right. So, super interesting. And, um, you know, congratulations on being promoted as a as a partner at Harlem Capital. But, but you know, what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned while investing through Harlem Capital, uh, which has shared, you know, how how you invest?
1: I think the biggest, and it's probably the thing I didn't expect, um, you know, from the outside looking in, I thought VC is just another piece of fine type of finance. It's just about the numbers. It's just about you know how many customers a, a company might have, how they scale quickly, what those metrics really look like. And I think over time, but even from the beginning, the thing that sticks with me the most is at the early stage investing, it really, really just is about people. And it's about the person uh, that takes the leap to become a founder and their strength and their grit and their perspective on the world, the key insight that they have but also how they then bring people around them to join them on this really big, uh, audacious mission to solve a really big problem that maybe nobody else believes in and everyone wants to say no. And as an investor, uh, it's really about learning how to meet people like that, meet people who are excited to change the world or excited to build something great, Um, but also to understand what makes people great and what makes a great founder and to be able to invest and build a relationship with them so you can partner with them along the way. Um, outside of the investor and direct investing side, I didn't realize how interconnected the industry is between funds and LPs and customers and founders. It really is, you know, at the end of the day, all about the relationships um, and the the bridges that you build along the way. So I think I I underestimated how important that was. But to me, it's like at the forefront of my mind, you know, when I when I think about the work.
0: Got interesting. And. Um... You know, I was wondering, you know, how how does Harlem Capital add value to founders other than, you know, capital infusion?
1: So we really see ourselves as a community fund in a lot of ways where we try to bring the uh, the community that we've built of uh, our network of diverse operators, founders, everyone who's really excited about our mission to help support early stage companies um, that are backed by diverse folks. Um, and so I'd say in addition to the, the community piece, Tactically, um, you know, we really see ourselves as a powerhouse in media marketing and branding. It's how we built our fund. It's how we have scaled and um, really try to teach and help our founders as they do that for their own businesses, particularly on the B2B side. Uh, our whole team has strong backgrounds in um, engineering or private equity, uh, finance. And so we really like to get our hands dirty and help founders understand the metrics they need to reach for growth how to set up their, um, you know, models to understand what that will look like, really digging in deep. And I think, um, you know, came to bear a lot during the SVD crisis and helping companies manage cash flow and just understand the nuts and bolts of of the business in that way. And um, I think also through our network, what we're able to do is bring in high value advisors and operators to help our founders with their business. So, for example, we've got a fractional CRO that's helping some of our companies to 3x their growth in a really short period of time. And that's been really exciting to see, Okay, what is that new talent introduction or advisor introduction that we're able to provide that helps unlock their growth and help them get to the next stage? And I think tied with that, also help our founders with fundraising, whether in the current rounds that we're leading and investing in or as they continue to scale and graduate to the A and B and beyond too
0: interesting and uh, especially you know uh, i think 2023 is is a, is a difficult year for founders when it comes to raising capital and also uh, there have been instances when uh, teams would have been let go um how would how, you know how would you advise uh, to a founder if they need to let go of, of a team member in case you know uh, they're not able to raise funding what advice would you give to them
1: It has been a really hard year. It's something we've seen in our portfolio a number of times. Uh, At the beginning of the market downturn, we actually did a big session with all of our founders. We put together a lot of materials on like the right way to handle a reduction in force or layoffs um, and how to really communicate to the team with empathy, uh, with clarity about the business and where it's going, but also to help people land on their feet and land in the right way so that they can go off and be successful, even if it's not at your company or organization. I think a few of the, the big things we really try to articulate is as soon as you realize that you're going to have to cut burn, uh, cut expenses. And usually that just means you know letting people go because that's the biggest expense of the business is doing it early, uh, quickly, um, efficiently. But I think the biggest challenge that people make is they don't cut deep enough early on. And so what that then means is then instead of cutting 20% of your team at the beginning of the year, you might do 10% and then 5% and then 5% again as the year goes on. And that ends up being really challenging for morale, for the people who want to stay, for business continuity. So the biggest thing we say is if you're going to cut, cut early, uh, make it deeper than you think you should, um, because then that lets you rebuild the culture of the people who will still be at the company um, and help chart it in a better direction for growth versus constantly having to cut as you go. I think the second is, Uh, you know, to remember that we're still all people first, I think it goes back to what I was saying before about everything really being about people. Um, And I think what we found is people just really value leaders who are empathetic, who are honest, who are upfront, um, who communicate really well. And I think communicating clearly and really well is is another really big key um, as well. But, you know, putting people first as much as you can um, through some of those challenges.
0: All right. got it. super interesting. And um, I was wondering, you know, how do you look at market sizing and market timing risk when you're looking to invest into, into startups? Mm,
1: I feel like that's always a, a big question. Is it the founder that wins? Is it the market that wins? Is it the business, yeah. the execution? Uh, I tend to believe that the market in a lot of ways, you can't beat and outrun the scale and size of the market. Um, you know, if there's a small market, it's super fragmented. It's really hard to scale. I think The best founders will still do their best, but I think, you know, can still struggle. Um, And in many cases, people are not creating new markets. They're building or expanding within existing markets. And so the market you choose as a founder, I think, matters a lot. And it can dictate a lot about your fundraising path and how easy it is to acquire customers and your path to scale and and all of those kind of things. Um, Excuse me. But at the same time, I think you can be too early to market. You can be too late. And that's really hard to time particularly at the early stage when you're building something that could be five, seven years out for like the biggest companies to be excited about to to opt into. And so I think what we try to lean into is, okay, what is the insight that the founder has and that we have as we think about a market for why change is coming, why change is inevitable and why it's a long-term trend, right? Not, you know, a quick blip in the cycle, you know, where everyone's trying to build on blockchain or everyone's trying to use a certain type of AI, um, you know, what is the true enduring type of change? What are the demographic shifts that are happening? What are the, you know, shifts in terms of um, employment structures and all those things? And I think that has just to be a really unique insight, um, has to be a long term trend. And um, yeah, you, you have to, it's hard to time. But I think if the insight is strong enough, and the trend is long lasting enough, um, and the market's big enough, then you can try to tend to, you know, navigate through that well. But I think it's really hard <laughs> at
0: the end of the day too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you, you, you've you been in, in in the firm for a couple of years. What's been your, you know, biggest uh, hits? And, you know, what, what did you learn from investing from those hits?
1: Um, I think it's been, you know, some of the investments I was able to, to source and lead. Um, okay. A number of them came from long-lasting relationships kind of back okay. again, where, you know, someone I connected with really well a few years prior, uh, they hadn't been building a business yet, but they introduced me to someone who was later on down the road. And um, by virtue of just having built that relationship and trust over time, they felt comfortable, you know, making that introduction that then led to an investment. Or maybe a founder that we passed on earlier on at a different phase of their business came back. They'd grown. Um, and because of the way we were through the diligence process, they felt, you know, we were able to to win the investment later, too. So I think it comes down, you know, the, I think those wins are building those relationships, um, and I think also just how you treat people um, in in the industry. And I think, you know, you can hear things on Twitter, see things on Twitter, of uh, bad investor behavior and all of that. But I do think it all does come around. And so I think as you, if you treat people well, respectfully, and um, are able to build great relationships, um, it pays off in the long run.
0: Got it. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of VCs talk about not investing to Uber or, you know, some high, high uh, you know, high growth uh, rocket ship, but what's been your biggest miss, you know, uh, while being part of Harlem?
1: Ooh, we actually have a, a list that we shared on Twitter of like our our quote, unquote, the anti-portfolio of companies we wish we could have backed. Um, I think firm-wide a couple have been, Squire um, was one that the team knew pretty well. Or Susu, um, who actually were the the first call I'd ever had at Harlem Capital. Um, And I think those are founders that we know well. We keep up with. We build strong relationships with founders, even if we aren't able to invest in a lot of cases. And I think in those two, it was maybe kind of back to your question on market of you know is it big enough? Is it large enough? You know what do we see? What do we think? I think we were also just like at an earlier stage in our fund where you know, we, we've grown and evolved too. Um, but yeah, looking back, I'd say those are probably some of the, the ones we wish we could have backed though. You know, we always say we'll, we'll be around for the, the next company. And um, yeah, it's all about the long-term game in some ways.
0: And, and uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've been a fan of Jared and Henry, uh, you know, they're quite active on social media, but what's been some, some of your biggest lessons, you know, uh, that you learned from, the from them uh, since you started?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're awesome um, and just like visionary people and, and great people as well. And um, maybe something from the very beginning, um, since we've been talking about that, has just been, I don't know that I realized the power of building in public um, as a way of building your community, building the brand, launching the fund and scaling. Um, I think a lot of people try to you know, build quietly and only tell a few people. And I think they've really shown me and I think the world also the power of what it looks like to have a very clear point of view, have a really clear mission. Um, building a brand where where we like to say that you know, mission opens doors that you know profit can't otherwise, and sometimes. Um, but I think also, by being yourself. And I think sometimes there can be pressure to look like another investor, talk like another investor, kind of do the same, invest the same. And I think, you know, what our LPs are looking for is people with unique insights and unique perspective who are willing to take thoughtful contrarian bets that lead to outsize returns. And I think uh, the way that they've been able to articulate that and bring people into our story and along the journey um, has been been really remarkable.
0: Uh, Got it. And uh, you made an interesting tweet, uh, which is, uh, you know, bear markets or breakup markets. Um, And, you know, do you think we have hit the peak and do you think, you know, things are going to start improving from now?
1: Um, I don't think we've had the peak yet. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of the fallout so far. Um, The reason I don't think we've seen the peak yet is I think there's still a lot of companies who kind of did the things we talked about earlier. They've extended runway. They've pivoted the business, perhaps. They've refocused the team. um, But they still might not have had product market fit, and it might be challenging for them to continue raising capital in this market. Um, Because I think on the flip side, while the bear market is not over, investing activity is picked up and there's a different competitive set of other startups that investors are looking at too, that might have more traction or might be early enough that they don't have the baggage of poor traction at the same time. And so I think we'll continue to see a shakeup of companies who, you know, were able to extend runway and their life, but expect the life of the business, but haven't found product market fit. And I think we'll see that into the next year. Um, unfortunately, uh, but at the same time, I do think investment activity is picking up, and so in the investor seat, it starts to look like it's balancing out. But I think, unfortunately, we're still in for some pain as um, things kind of shake hmm. out.
0: Correct. And and do, and just just to follow up on that. Do you think this is is this a right time for a founder to to start building, or should they you know wait it out, wait for uh, you know things to get better and then build something?
1: I think it's a great time still. Um, in some ways, I think it's the best time, right? To right. Um, And here's why. I think in a really hot up market where everything is great and rosy, you can start building something. uh, And I think we're starting to see it today where you might see growth attraction and customers, but you're not solving a critical need. You're not solving their number one problem. You might be solving a great problem, but if it comes to them cutting your product or someone else's and they cut yours, it wasn't high enough on their priority list. And so I think for founders today, you're able to build uh, stronger, leaner, more specific businesses that are solving really critical needs. And you'll know right away if it's working or it's not, because if it's working, those customers will make the, they'll, they'll stretch for you in their budget and they will prioritize you over other products. And so I think that signal, that signaling effect is a little bit stronger today than it used to be. Um, and so if a business is growing today, uh, that that carries a lot of weight. And so I think it is Still a great time, Um, you know, I think it's hard to time a market. It will always be challenging, but I think history has also shown some of the best businesses we have today that have scaled started in, you know, the recession of 2008 to 2012 too. So I still think it's a great time. Um, It's definitely harder, but um, I think builds a a stronger, stronger businesses along the way.
0: Got it. And, and, you know, we, we see a lot of cycles, be it web three or AI, uh, do you think we are in an AI bubble? And you know, how do you how do you assess the landscape now?
1: Oh, definitely. I think so. Um, it's funny, I, I looked at the Google trends for web three and crypto, um, and then AI in terms of like terms that are used in search. And AI is like five times you know what we saw for web three and crypto. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a few reasons for that. Like it's had this magical consumer moment with OpenAI and other tools yeah. where, you know everyone is able to see like, this is what AI can do for me today. Um, and that's really exciting, you know, for consumers, for businesses, um, even we're thinking about, okay, well, how can we use AI for our workflows to make us more efficient and and do things better. And I also think the business models are better, right? Like there's clear value that's being provided. There's a clear way to capture that value for businesses. Um, but I think we're still in a bubble because I don't know that we've learned the lessons, at least in the investor world, and you know, for what it looks like to overcapitalize and overvalue businesses that are really, really early. Granted, here the outcomes could be 10 times bigger than you know what they work for Web3 and, and other categories, but I think anytime there's a lot of money flowing into one space, there's always gonna be a bubble. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of companies that are more of like the wrappers on ChatGPT and others that will not persist but i do think there's some incredible businesses that are solving really critical enterprise or consumer problems um that will be like the the big names of the future so yes a bubble um but i think some really long lasting and enduring companies will come out of it too
0: got it and, and uh, you know especially with chat gpt i think i've become a bit a little better writer uh, but but what business models do you think ai will disrupt, disrupt uh, going you know going forward
1: um I guess I think, well, in terms of business models, I guess I think about, uh, actually I think what I've seen is a lot of the companies are leveraging existing models a little bit more. Uh, If you just think about the software and the tools just being applied in in new verticals and markets, this tends to be where I think about it more. So maybe less on the model side, but more in what are the old problems that can be solved in a new way? What are the new categories and markets to build in? I guess in terms of model, I'd say, you know, the way we're starting to see AI uh, being built into vertical software and leverage in vertical software for different industries could be one, um, where it's used to accelerate, you know, professional services and how people do their work or the workflow for finance teams or compliance teams um, in various, you know, various industries. Um, so yeah, I think I think about that a little bit more, right? Like the future where AI is just in, a, in, a, in, in embedded and just a part of all of the software tools that we're using today.
0: and um uh, and I also realized that you know you you've been part of all raise um, how did Aldres help you to you know connect with other GPs and uh, other funds and you know what's been your experience raising funding from other uh, LPs?
1: Um, I think ours was really helpful. I think in terms of helping to build and connect you with the community of other women investors, hey. uh, on the GP side, I think their champions program is probably the most helpful where junior investors are paired to meet quarterly with a, a GP at a, another fund. And I just think it's an awesome opportunity just to connect with people you otherwise wouldn't, um, because, you know, they're in a different city or a different stage and, You also just get that insight, um, some insights from them about what it looked like for them to scale and grow in their career and build and scale their funds. And so I've gotten really a a ton from that. I would also say maybe just as importantly has been just like the connection with other peers. I think people underestimate how much venture can be like a solo pursuit in some ways and very individual. Even at a fund, you might not always work with the people that are on your team um, just because you're doing diligence or out in meetings or at events and conferences. And so giving the opportunity to connect on a deeper level with peers who are going through the same thing having the same challenges kind of asking a lot of the same questions together um for me has been you know where i've gotten a ton of support and, and i really think always for some of those connections and, and introductions too
0: got it and uh, uh you know starting as an as an intern and not becoming a partner i think you you've you got a fantastic career but um, but what advice would you give to young people who want to get into venture landscape, especially because it's so difficult to get into venture capital, uh, but, w- but what would be, a, you know, top three tips uh, for them to, you know?
1: Ooh, top three tips. Number one, follow my colleague, Nicole Tismaso on Twitter. Uh, she yeah. shares all the best tips and insights and and lessons on like how to actually go through the recruiting process and everything. And she posts open roles. Um, so I'd, I always recommend that. I think the second thing I typically tell people is to just try to get involved, you know, be engaged in the startup scene community in your city. Um, for example, this week is New York Tech Week. It's also DC Tech Week. And so just getting plugged in to understand the landscape in your city, building relationships with founders, building relationships with investors, and do a lot of that, like, out facing work. I think the third is then doing the inward work, I think, to understand your why, know, you know, what it is about venture that you're excited about, what types of companies you want to invest in, what stage you want to invest in. Um, Because I think, you know, going through the interview process, those tend to be a lot of the questions. I think uh, as much as I mentioned about relationships, I think that's true in hiring and true in venture firms. And they often tend to be very small. And so really thinking about what you bring your value add, culture add to those firms that you're excited to be at, I think is, is really uh, critical um, as well.
0: And, you know, I quickly want to do the top to you. What's your favorite uh, business book?
1: Favorite business book, one I read recently, or maybe I guess not so recently anymore, but um, would be The Power Law by Stephen Maliby. Um, Really great history and overview of VC and where the industry's gone and how how we kind of got to where we are. Um, So I really love that one um, and its style too.
0: Put that we've done in the show notes, and you know, if you could go back in time when you started in venture capital, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done thing differently?
1: Um, invested in Stripe. Just kidding. Um, they it was it was far later when I joined. But I think you know, I, I when I joined uh, the firm, it was late 2019 into 2020. And I wish in those first six months that I had just tried to be in person more with people and try to build more of those relationships. I think the last couple of years we've done everything online and you can still connect with people in that way. But I think it would have been great to start off doing that a bit more in person. And now that everything is back and, you know, there's tech weeks and conferences, um, I think I just encourage anyone that's new or entering the space to just get out there, um, you know, meet people and, and um, yeah, try to build those relationships
0: in person. Awesome. And, uh, you know, what's your favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom?
1: Uh, probably BoomCal. Um, my team's, I've become a, a power user of it. And it's a calendar tool to help manage your calendar, send out requests to people, have them book on your calendar. Um, I probably spend more of my day in that than than anything else. Um, and then superhuman just to like get through email that much faster. But time is everything and connecting with people is everything. So I'd say Bimcal.
0: Also, we'll put that in the show notes. And um, now Gabby, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Harlem Capital?
1: Best way to reach out uh, is to follow on social channels. So on Twitter uh, at Gabby Kezo, uh, or on LinkedIn, you can follow me there as well. And then for Harlem Capital, um, we share all our great news and updates also on our social channels, um, everything at Harlem Capital.
0: Also, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, and Gabby, thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you.